In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And Matthew 3, Matthew 3, I want to personally thank Calvary Chapel Bible College for your generosity and hospitality toward myself and my family. Um, you never know, as a teacher, you're going to get hostility or what. So the third of you, that's the case, but the other two thirds are like, oh, cool, we don't know anything else about him, so it's fine. His kids are cute. I mean, <laughs> I think. Um, anyways, but thank you for putting up with us. It's been a, a pleasure to have you guys just the way you are. And that's been good for my kids. Uh, so Matthew 3. We were not saved to go to heaven. We were not saved to go to heaven as if the whole problem is that we're going to hell and what God comes to do is to rescue us from hell and yay, story's good and over. That is not what our salvation is all about. You were not saved to go to heaven because if you were saved to go to heaven, then your salvation is a failure because you're here. And what did you do wrong, or what did God do wrong, that you, this is heaven? I've been here long enough to know that it's not. Yeah, we were not saved to go to heaven. Our salvation, rather, our salvation is participation in God's life. I was rescued from my sin so that I can commune and share in the life of God. Not just any life from any God, but we're talking the triune life, Father, Son, and Spirit of God. This life that's happening inside the Godhead, between Father, Son, between Son and Spirit, between Spirit and Father, the life that is happening in this relationship, I was saved so that I can participate in this life. So if you tune out anything else, keep that. It might be one of the most important things you can hold on to. I shared with Matthew class um, this verse, and it always, I, I don't think I can share it enough because I think Second Peter gets sort of like neglected. It's like in the like bottom reaches of the New Testament. Um, it's such an important verse for understanding why we exist right now. Why are you going to Bible college? Why are you a Christian waiting for Christ to return or waiting to die to go to heaven? Or like, what is all of this? Second Peter 1 verse 3. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, there's a lot of Bible wording here, so let me just make sure you're catching up. He has called us to his own glory and excellence. We say that God doesn't share his glory, and what we mean by that is that 
we don't give glory that belongs to God to other things. But here the Bible tells us that God actually wants us to share in his glory. He wants us to have that glory. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and his own excellence, by which, so through this, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. This is the gospel, and it's more than I've been saved from hell. His precious and great promises are a far bigger picture for us. So that through them, through the precious and very great promises, so what are these? Where are they taking us? So that through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. The gospel is not just that I don't go to hell and I go to heaven, yay. The gospel is that I am invited to the life of God himself and I get to partake, to partner with him in his nature, his glory, his excellence. That word partake, the root of it is koinonia, which I think some of you may know. Anyone? What's koinonia? Fellowship. And it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul pleads with the Corinthian church, I do not want you to have fellowship or to be partakers of demons. The Bible puts a very stark picture before us, and it's more than, are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell? It's, are you going to be a partaker, a participant? Are you going to have fellowship and share in the nature of God himself, or are you going to share in the nature of demons? To put it real short and provocatively, you can either be demonized or divinized. Not that we ever claim God's essence as our own. That would make you no longer a creature, and that would make him no longer God. The Bible has no room for that. But that we as creatures can be seated next to and share in equal communion with God, that's what the Bible means by our divinization or our partaking in his divine nature. We have access to his life, his friendship, and he sees us as equals. As Romans 8 says, that we will be co-heirs with Christ. That means that we are seen at the same level of Christ. He's the first brother, if you will, the first son who gets the bulk of the inheritance. But we're siblings who also receive an inheritance with him from the father. This is crazy good news the gospel gives us. That we are, ele- yes, we're dust. But we are elevated from dust. Because Christ took on our dust, and that dust was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And Ephesians 2 says that we are seated with him in these places. And meanwhile, we just kick around tin cans waiting for something to do because, I don't know, I mean, God's got to come back soon. That's all I'm waiting for. I'm saved. I'm good. I got my ticket. But what actually is on offer for us is that we keep on growing into this divine nature. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. God's nature is eternal, and it's infinite. It doesn't end, and there's no bounds. If I was able to perfectly, big if, abstain from the sins that pull me away from fellowship with him, 
And to with all my energy and time devote myself to pressing into union with Christ. And if I did that for 70 years, I'd be a much better person than I am now, for sure. But I would be only beginning to scratch the surface of the further up and further in that I'm invited to. We have an eternity to explore the eternal one. And it starts here. Do I desire partaking in the life of God now? Because if I don't, you'll be doing that forever. And what makes you think that you'll want to be in heaven if you don't want this now? Okay, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means turn around, come back to God, because God's reign is here. we got to move, people. God has moved. He wants us to meet him. For this is he of who it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, this is chapter 40, when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. What you have here is a picture of a person who has so simplified his life from where he lives to what he wears to what he eats. It, he has a singular mission in life. It's, I'm, not, I'm going to minimize these things so I don't think about them. So all I can think about is how to prepare people's hearts for the coming of Christ to their hearts. Now, I need you to understand that Matthew puts this here after seeing baby Jesus be born and almost killed and rescued. He's putting this passage here about John the forerunner so that we know how to prepare ourselves to meet Christ as he's about to enter into the narrative in his I'm ready to kick Satan's butt ministry. This is what we're about to see the king up here. And John is teaching us how to prepare ourselves to receive this Christ into our hearts. So he's out there with his mission. And in verse 5, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Which is really cool because Jews didn't get baptized. Gentiles got baptized. This is the Jew admitting I have not lived like one of God's people. So I want to repent. I want to turn toward the way that God's meant us to live. And they're confessing their sins. This is a brilliant revival. But notice what John is not doing. He's not hyping people for the coming of Christ with huge fireworks and an event and pumping people's emotions up. He's calling them to the hard work of recognizing what is broken Admitting it so that there, Christ will meet them. What Matthew wants us to know is when we meet Christ, we do not meet him in our highest places. We meet him in our most broken places. Christ's way into our heart is through the cracks and the brokenness. And it's only the person who says, I have these, who confesses these, that's where Christ is. And so the people are doing this. They're going into the water to be baptized. And in verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Genesis class, I should think here, Genesis 3, verse 15, 
the seed of the serpent. This is just different synonyms. You brood of vipers, you offspring of the serpent. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He doesn't need your righteousness, is what he's telling them. Self-righteousness. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I hope you guys see something here. He's by a river of water, and he's telling them, you must be a fruitful tree, because the chaff will be blown away. Anyone picking up on it? Thank you. Someone said it. A few people said it. Psalm 1. We're being invited to the true Christian life here. And now in the midst of this, verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee, a very low region. The people in Jerusalem did not like Galileans. They were considered secularized Jews, or Hellenized, if you will, um, secularized in our context. They didn't go to the temple very often. They were poor. They had an accent. They were like Twin Peaks people, I guess. Um, we know it, don't we? Come on. I'm talking to Twin Peaks people. And then someone were like, I'm from Crestlines. I don't know what you're saying. I hear you, Crestline critter. I hear you. Um, and Jesus came from Galilee. So from, from one place that isn't that prestigious to the Jordan, which remember, he's in the wilderness, so he's going lower. To John, this eccentric who's out of the religious establishment, to be baptized by him. So here's Jesus in this downward trajectory. From a low plate from heaven, we'll start, to Galilee, then to the Jordan River in the wilderness, then to John, who the religious establishment is there going, we're here to see what you're up to because we don't think that this is authorized. And then he's going to be baptized. This is the same water in which adulterers and tax collectors and, and people who are just sending their brains out are in this water, and here comes Christ to this water. There's no place too low for Christ to go. And then John is taken aback in verse 14, and it says that he would have prevented Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him. By the way, that humility of John is precisely why Christ comes to John. First contact in the gospel is John the forerunner. Because this is where Christ goes. He goes to the lowest places and he finds us there. But Jesus answered in verse 15, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, 
immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The first time in all of Scripture that the rumored Trinity is clearly demonstrated. The voice of the Father from heaven, the physical form of the Son in the water, and the dove, the Spirit, like a dove coming to descend upon him. What is significant about Christ's baptism is, yeah, he was baptized, but that's not what we're going to touch on here. What's significant is what happens because he's baptized. That we see the triune life of God in operation right here. We have hints through scripture. But now we see all three of them operating. And we see that in the baptism of Christ, the life of the Godhead is we get a window into it for a second. And we see something that's happening. Now, One of the things that I want to encourage us to see, and I think that what Matthew wants us to get into as well, is that God is not going to be known by us fully through an intellectual, rational knowledge. God cannot just be known through my reason or through my brain. In fact, it's quite insane to think that God can be known by our brain. As if he could be held there. This is it. The confines of my brain is the confines of God. Obviously, that sounds ridiculous. But that there is a type of knowing God that goes beyond my ability to define things or to identify heresy or to say I'm on this camp or that camp of different doctrinal issues. There is a means of knowing God that goes beyond these things and it's called participatory knowledge. That God wants us to participate in his life and fellowship. And there's a way of knowing him that is not because, oh, I see you, so now I can describe you. Or, oh, I heard you, so now I can repeat you. Or, oh, I read and studied you, so now I can define you. He wants us to know him in a way that we experience it inside and out. In fact, it's much more of a way in which he knows us. And because he knows us, now we know him. Because he gets inside of us. When I was in high school, um, I ate, drank, slept, someone already said it, and dreamt baseball. Um, I, it was my goal, that was my professional goal, to be a baseball player. And I found out they were okay, and I was like, oh, hands down, this is what I want. Um, So I did all kinds of crazy things to get better at the craft. One of the things I did, my brother and I, we spent a summer up in San Francisco where uh, Dusty Baker had a school of baseball. If you don't know Dusty Baker, he's like the manager of the Astros who are the reigning champs. So pretty legit dude. (laughs) Uh, Dusty Baker had this camp, this school. It's called the Dusty Baker School of Baseball. And so we went there and... We sat down in classrooms. We opened up history books about the history of baseball. 
We opened up manuals on how to teach hitting and how to become a better hitter. We leafed through diagrams of how to hold different pitches so you can master a, a 12 to 6 curve ball instead of a 6 to 3 slider. Or we went through all of these things in books and studied them and had tests. And then I left and I got first team all league. Is that how that happened? Not at all. Um, we go to the school, and yeah, we learned a little bit of like sit down little classroom thing, very small. It was like the first day only. The rest of the school was on the field. The rest of the school was a baseball in my hand or a bat in my hand. It was actually throwing the ball. It was seeing live pitching. It was being in a bullpen session with scouts watching you and telling you how you can get more velocity or where you can fix your delivery. This was a hands-on participatory school. We didn't study baseball. We participated and played baseball. One of my worries in the Western world is that this is how we approach, this is not how we approach our faith. We think that we can go and just learn a bunch of stuff from books and write the right papers and we know God. But that's absolutely crazy. That works if you're a Gnostic and you believe that all I have to do is have knowledge of God and I ascend this physical world. But actually, we live in a physical and spiritual world and there are demons who are after hindering your abiding in Christ. They want to ruin your participation in the divine nature. They want to hold you back so that you're just a Christian by name. Like a Pharisee and a Sadducee. And unless we take that seriously, we will never see the point of saying, I must take my faith and I must participate in it. And I must work out my salvation because now I understand my salvation isn't getting out of hell for free. My salvation is pressing into the divine nature. And that takes a little bit of practice and participation. That means I get off my butt and I pray. That means, yes, actually you should pray off your butt sometimes. That means that I go help people and that I give and I'm generous and that I fast and that I pray and I worship with other Christians and that I'm allowing other people to see the flaws in my life and I'm allowing them to work that out. And I'm willing to admit and recognize where idolatry or demons are working in my life and warping my view of the world and myself. You and I are on the forefront of a fight, a battle, a war for our soul. Spiritual warfare isn't what happens when you get a flat tire on the freeway, or your computer crashed and your paper was due in two hours, or you didn't have your charger and you can't turn in your paper to me. Someone literally told me this, so it's going to be late or whatever, right? Okay, that's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare doesn't just happen in our life. Spiritual warfare is your life. You are constantly in the battle, and we must therefore have a participatory knowledge of our maker and dwell in the divine life, his triune life. The Pharisees and Sadducees don't do this. This is where Matthew's cautioning the church. The Pharisees and Sadducees are there, but they're just watching everything. We don't see a single one of them in the water. In fact, can you even imagine one of them in the water? The Sadducees, first of all, are these upper-class priests in Jerusalem. They got these like nice, gorgeous robes on, which says, I'm a dignified staff. Everybody knows who they are by looking at them, right? Can you imagine them getting into that filthy water with those filthy people? Can you imagine them taking off their vestments? 
and being like any ordinary Joe, sorry, any Joes, um, and getting into, into the water. Can you even imagine that? You cannot, because they've built this identity. We know God in our heads, and now we've got to kind of figure everything else down below. The Pharisees are not being included. What they are doing is they are like the people who are studying baseball through books. And you know what? There are people that do that, and they actually make a living doing that. You know what they're called? Umpires. Umpires study the game in its rule book, and they have it mastered. But you know what umpires do? They make a living making judgment calls about everybody else on the field. You're safe. We can hang out with you. You're out. Not belonging. Um, That was in. That's out. Like This is what they do. Ball strike. They're rule enforcers. And this is what we become if we are not willing to partake in the divine life. So what John is inviting us to do, where we see Jesus first appear in his active saving ministry is right here in the waters with John at the Jordan River. This is where he will come to us. This is what John is preparing our hearts for is that it's when we confess our sins, we turn around and return to God, and we go into these waters. Waters always flow in the lowest places. This is us going down, 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 being honest about who we are, entering into humility, poverty of spirit, saying, I have absolutely nothing else but to be in this water to be cleansed. I can't do anything like this on my own. This is where Christ meets people. Anybody can meet Christ when they enter into the water, so to speak. The waters of humility. And that's when, there is where the Trinity is revealed. That is where we are being invited to partake in the divine life. The triune life of God is when we go down. God is one essence. He's one nature. Eternally existing in three persons. One nature, one essence. Eternally existing in three persons. I'm not going into defining the Trinity here for us. That's enough for now. Three persons, eternally existing in one nature, one essence. Each person of the Trinity, because they are eternally existing, it means none of them has hierarchy over the other. Please do not think the Father is the boss of all of them. It's not like Christ came later and then the Holy Spirit came afterward. This is an egalitarian. They're three persons, but they're the same nature and essence. None of them has more divine nature or essence than the others. They are equal, but they're also distinctly three. There's an egalitarianism, if you will. I know it's usually used in different contexts, so maybe it's not the best word. There's an equality between them. And the way that this works is each of them is eternally receiving infinite and perfect love and adoration and glory from the other two. Each person is forever, infinitely, eternally receiving praise, glory, and adoration from the other two. 
And at the same time, while receiving such perfect and infinite and eternal love, praise, and glory, is reciprocating this praise, love, and glory on an eternal and infinite scale to the other two members of the Trinity. So the Father is pouring all this infinite and perfect love, happiness, and joy into Son, and Son is reciprocating it back to the Father, and the Father to the Spirit, and the Spirit is reciprocating it back to the Father, and then the Spirit to the Son, and the Son to the Spirit. And this is happy, reciprocated, giving fully of themselves to each other, and receiving each other as they are, without judgment, without exclusion, receiving and then turning it back over. And so what you have is this eternal flow, this eternal movement between them, as they continually worship, adore, glorify, praise, love each other. It doesn't stop. God, C.S. Lewis, defined as a pulsating, dynamic activity, even if you will not think me irrelevant, a kind of dance. There is movement in God because he is relationship. God is not there. we got to go find him, knock, maybe get in on him. Um, he is always pulsating with love and adoration. So much so that Jonathan Edwards described the creation of the world as an overflow of his constant having to share his love and glory with something else. So he had to make stuff so that it can now be included in the perfection of this relationship. This is why I'm made and why you're made. It's because God wants us in the center of this life. He didn't make us so that we can worship him and love him. He didn't need any of that. He doesn't. Father, Son, and Spirit have such a perfect reciprocated relationship going. They did not need us. We need them. They wanted creatures to experience. This is too good to keep. We must share it. We're welcomed in. Matthew is showing us through John the Forerunner how to get in. We must stop being Pharisees and Sadducees who know all the right answers. Uh, you, you, if you graduate CCBC, and if, and if I have to do your funeral at Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks, and you mastered only, all you did was you mastered why you are a Calvinist and not an Arminianist, or why you're a covenantalist and not a dispensationalist, or why you love liturgy over charismatics. Like, if, this, if these are the only things that you sorted out in your time in this earth, you failed. Miserably failed. Amen. Pharisees and Sadducees spend all their time mastering these things. Christians get into the water and they're immersed. Experiencing God is an immersion. Body, soul, spirit, thoughts, feelings, desires. We want to be baptized every day in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You notice how Matthew ends his gospel with this. Go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This big stuff to share in the triune life of God that he's pouring into us. So for you and me, this means I don't, I, there's nothing I can actually there's a flow here. Like, like the Jordan River is a perfect metaphor for the flow of God's life. And he, all he wants you to do is step into it. It will flow into us if we step into the water. But the water is where people who got to keep their identities in order and the reputation on the line, those people don't get in the water. 
So first, we must strip our identities. The things that we're holding on to that make us us, Thomas Merton said that we're doing that because we know we're dead and invisible and we're trying to be seen. So we're like, this is who I am, this is what I believe, and this is blah, blah, blah. We say these things that people have something to touch about us. Jesus is saying, or John, maybe Matthew, the Bible is saying, strip this off. Get into the water. Uh, take your sins seriously. That's part of what John is here doing. Telling the people of God, wake up. God is moving. He wants us in on his life, but our sins must be repented of. And here's, here's why. God's not mad at your sin. And the church has stopped being a sin management establishment. The reason the Bible is so hard on sin is because sin is precisely that which pulls us out of the water, of being in the flow of the triune life of God. Sin is a disruption to the triune life moving in us. It cuts us off. Sin is my unplugging, if you will, from the outlet of God's divine nature and energy. His energy is pulsating in us, but sin puts up a firewall and says, nope, we got this. I put a nice robe on Phil and he looks good. He did not want to take that off. <laughs> sin clings to us in such a way. We must take our sins seriously. We must confess honestly. We must enter into the water with humility. This is how we get in on the life of God. And when we do, when we do, we discover who we are. You're not the projection you're putting out to everybody else here. When you participate in the life of God, you know who you really are. Because God says, I see you and I know you. And you know that you're his. And that's what you find out. You know who you are because you know whose you are. And once you understand this, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Everything else becomes so secondary. Life can be whatever it is. But I know who I am because I know whose I am. And when we do, when we participate in the triune life of God, we hear what Christ heard. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Brandon, my son in whom I am well pleased. Emma, my son, yes I mean son, in whom I am well pleased. Christina, my son, in whom I'm well pleased. Because in the Bible, we're all sons because sons were the inheritors. We're all made sons in Christ. We're all made inheritors in Christ. We know who we are and whose we are. And hearing that line, hearing God say over you, you are my child in whom I'm well pleased, changes everything. The decisions you need to make are no longer as important. The things you're stressing out about, Whose friend group should I be in? Who should I propose to by spring? Uh, you know, all these things. Um, they really begin to pale. They really begin to pale. There's less pressure on them. So, are you guys willing? Are you guys willing to end your lives where it's like, wow, I've been living in the presence of God, and now I'm in the presence of God. It almost seemed like I just went through a door. 
That's what we want. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen.